Our epistle reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans in the 13th chapter. And for now, I'm going to start reading in the 8th verse. Don't run up debts except for the huge debt of love that you owe each other. When you love others, you complete what the law has been after all along. The law code, don't sleep with another person's spouse, don't take someone's life, don't take what isn't yours, don't always be wanting what you don't have, and any other don't you can think of, finally adds up to this. Love other people as well as you do yourself. You can't go wrong when you love others. When you add everything up in the law code, the sum total is love. But make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of your day-to-day obligations that you lose track of time and doze off, oblivious to God. The night is about over. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work that he began when we first believed. We can't afford to waste a minute must not squander these precious daylight hours in frivolity and indulgence, in sleeping around and dissipation and bickering and grabbing everything in sight. Get out of bed and get dressed. Don't loiter and linger, waiting until the very last minute. Dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we invite you into our midst this morning because we believe that when people of faith come together, exciting things happen. We ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to the word that you have for us this morning. Amen. Well, this morning marks the first Sunday in Advent. Um, Not only that, as I think Pastor Clark mentioned last week, it's the first Sunday in our church new year. So happy new year to you. Uh, This Sunday marks an important moment when the story really begins again for Christians. These Sundays leading up to Christmas are marked by a spirit of waiting, a spirit of expectancy. And each year in the waiting, we try to gain a new or deeper understanding of what it truly means for Jesus to come into the world. This year during Advent, we are searching for Jesus. You can see that graphic up on the screen. It's a theme that we'll weave through the next few Sundays and that will lead us into Christmas morning. And this morning, as you heard during the lighting of our Advent candle, we are in pursuit of hope. I was struck when I found out that the lectionary reading for this morning was from Romans 13. Our reading this morning, or what you just heard me read, was the latter half of that chapter. But the first half of the chapter is interesting and provides a rather challenging invective against those who might strive against governments or authorities. And I want to say a little bit more about that this morning. Amongst biblical scholars, this chapter, Romans 13, is one of the most controversial chapters in the whole Bible. In fact, when I was working on my master's degree, my thesis advisor at John Carroll uh, was working on a biblical commentary for the, the book of Romans, and she would comment again and again and again that Romans 13 was one of just a couple of passages in Scripture that she still couldn't make any sense of. I realize that most of us at this point in the year are are ready to leave electoral politics behind us for a while, but I think our recent presidential election provides an interesting backdrop against which to read this chapter. So as crazy as this sounds, I'm going to ask you to take yourself back just a couple of weeks to the days before 
the election before any of us was certain of the outcome. I want you to pretend a for a moment that the winning candidate or party was still unknown, and I want you to hear this text from the opening of Romans 13 and consider how it strikes you. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now I want you to be honest with yourself. Regardless of who you preferred or voted for in this last election, how many of you had a moment along the way where you told yourself that if the other candidate won, there was no way you were gonna submit willingly to this or that policy or this or that injustice or this or that tax increase or whatever the case may have been. Do we truly believe that God has appointed authority figures even when we deeply disagree with their policies or their behaviors? Does anyone who resists authority incur judgment? I think these are difficult questions for us in our current political climate, and it's a lot more unsettling if you imagine living in a country that is under dictatorship or under corrupt rule or in a state of serious unrest. Would we assert to people experiencing genocide that their political leader has been instituted by God? Are protesters or rebels or freedom fighters under judgment? What led Paul to make such a sweeping statement of endorsement for all authority figures in all times and all places? I think to make sense of this chapter, we have to understand a little bit about Paul's state of mind and his expectations. And it tells us something important about how our expectations or what we hope for changes what we work for. Paul believed in the imminent return of Jesus. So in a sense, you could call him the ultimate fatalist. Why would you war against the existing authority if you expect Jesus to return at any moment? Why would you stage a resistance at great cost of life and property when all those things will be transformed and made new by the coming of God's kingdom? Seen in this light, we can more easily understand Paul's advice, suggesting to the believers in Rome that they should just accept things the way they are. These are the authorities that God has given us, Paul says, but it's just for a short time until God makes things right in a grand sweeping gesture. Now, our gospel reading this morning strikes a slightly different tone. We often think of the gospels as our earliest writings about Jesus, mostly because they appear first in the New Testament. But in fact, the gospels were written after Paul had written his letters. The Gospel of Matthew was probably written around 80 or 90 CE, almost a generation after Paul had written. By this point, it had become pretty clear that the expectation of the imminent return of Jesus was not exactly accurate in the way that people had been expecting. Followers of Jesus were starting to accept the fact that they might be in for a longer wait. We hear that language in the reading that Megan read for us from Matthew. The author says that no one knows the exact day and the hour. We must be vigilant and be prepared because the Son of Man might return at any moment. This is a different feel than the text in Romans, really something of a corrective to that earlier belief that Jesus would be back almost immediately, and it reflects that later date of writing. Now, in the grand scheme of things, we are living a lot further down the timeline. If the author of Matthew was writing 20 or 30 years after Paul, we are living 1,900 years after that. 
And I suggest to you this morning that in some ways, our theology has not really caught up with the fact that we have no idea when or if Jesus will re-enter time in some physical way. As Christians, I think we often lose sight of the fact that we are the continuing testament of God's ongoing presence in the world. It is our job to be paying attention to and discovering the ways in which God is still at work just as powerfully as when the Bible was being written. When we stop paying attention for evidence of our living God, we run the serious risk of building our theology on things that we don't actually believe to be true. So let's talk about hope for a minute. How do we use hope in our everyday speech? I've got a huge history assignment due Monday, but I'm really hoping to have it done by Friday so I don't have to worry about it all weekend. Hey, will you be at yoga this week? Oh, well, yeah, I, I hope so. It just depends on my schedule. I really hope my parents get me a new phone for Christmas. The screen on this one has been cracked like forever. Do you think we'll get through Thanksgiving dinner this year without anyone getting in an argument? Oh, one can always hope. What is hope in all these common uses? It's a wish for something that is, at best, iffy, and maybe downright unlikely. It's a passive expression of wanting a certain outcome without any real conviction that it's going to turn out that way. This is not the kind of hope we need. This is not the kind of hope that Jesus modeled for us. It's not the kind of hope to which we are called. Vaclav Havel was a 20th century Czech philosopher, writer, poet, and political activist. His life experiences ranged from spending some years in prison because he was a human rights demonstrator uh, during the communist era in, the Czech, in Czechoslovakia, all the way to being the president of Czechoslovakia and later the Czech Republic. Havel thought and he wrote a lot about hope. Quote, the kind of hope I always think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind, not as a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul. It's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and it's anchored somewhere beyond the world's horizons. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or even willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously heading in the right direction. It is rather an ability to work for something that is good and not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more unpropitious the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper the hope is. In short, I think that the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us on to good works, and the only true source of the breathtaking dimension of the human spirit and its efforts, is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. It is also this hope, above all, which gives us the strength to live and continually try new things, even in conditions that seem hopeless, as ours sometimes do here and now, end quote. Taken this way, it seems that hope is something we need to work on, to build up in our own hearts and spirits so that it might strengthen us 
to do the work to which God has called us. I want to offer four brief thoughts this morning about how we can increase our hope as individuals and as a community of faith. First of all, as followers of Jesus, we need to tell our stories. I'll say to you again that we are the continuing testament of God's living presence and action in our world. I'm going to assert to you this morning that the stories we tell about how Jesus is transforming our lives and the lives of people around us are every bit as vital and important as the stories that Isaiah or the Israelites told about God's faithfulness to them or the stories that Paul told about hearts being radically changed by the gospel. I challenge you to be a storyteller and I would love to hear your story. During our stewardship campaign, I hope you had a chance to see some of the videos of folks talking about how they have experienced extraordinary transformation as a result of following Jesus. And I'd like to see those videos become a regular part of our ongoing life here at BUMC. Pay attention to what God is doing and how your life is changing as you follow Jesus and tell us about it. Second, when you hear stories about the awesome things that are happening in this world, hear those stories with the same reverence and awe with which you hear the stories of scripture. Albert Einstein famously said that there are two ways we can look at this world. We can look at it as if nothing is a miracle, or we can look at it as if everything is. You are seeing and hearing the miracles all the time of what God is doing all around us. Calibrate your heart to receive those stories with joy and let them increase your hope as to all of the things that God still has in store for us. Third, do hopeful things and pay attention to hopeful things as a matter of discipline. There are amazing stories happening all around us in our communities, in the city of Cleveland, and in our world, and I think it is too easy for us not to notice when they're happening. Did you know that the number of people experiencing mal malnutrition in our world has decreased by over 20% in the last 25 years? That's incredible. Did you know that the rate of homelessness in the United States has gone down by over 10% in the last five years, and that includes a decrease of over 30% amongst veterans? Tremendous efforts are being made to address opiate addiction in our community. Progress is being made with treatment and legislation. Programs around Cleveland are offering job training to support and end the cycle of generational poverty. God is at work all the time. We have so much to hope in and so much to hopefully work toward. Fourth, follow the hopeful spirit in your own heart. We need to do what's right sometimes just because it's right and not always because it achieves a desired outcome or gets picked up on the local news or makes us popular. We are an outcome-oriented culture and we get messages every day that if our activities and investments aren't getting bigger and louder and flashier, that they're not working. But we are in the business of building relationships, of telling people about Jesus, and of building the kingdom, and those metrics look a little different. If God has placed a call on your heart to work toward a hopeful future for some group or on some issue, I challenge you this morning to answer that call. Now about 10 minutes ago, I leveled the accusation that we could call Paul the ultimate fatalist. But before I wrap up and get myself in trouble, I want to say that in another very real sense, Paul was also the ultimate optimist because he believed that the world was going to be really different really soon. 
He had all kinds of hope, all kinds of vision for the future, and Paul poured himself unreservedly into the call to live out the gospel. For Paul, there was nothing to lose and everything to be gained. He lived out the gospel and performed his ministry with the zeal and the conviction of someone who is all in. We hear that enthusiastic spirit in the latter part of Romans 13 that I read for you just a few minutes ago. The way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message is cool because the passage is just full of exclamation points. Be up and awake to what God is doing, exclamation point. Get out of bed and get dressed, exclamation point. Dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about, exclamation point. Paul preached the gospel as though the kingdom was imminent, and it was, and it is. For too long, we have lived as though we could expect Jesus at any moment, but it's time to live as though we expect and see Jesus in every moment. Following Jesus will change your life, and I have deep, resolute hope that the followers of Jesus can change the world. Amen.